Paul's life, but they do. And so Paul has already taken three missionary journeys. Uh, one of the ways you can kind of remember as far as dates, if you like dates, um, I, I don't remember very specific dates, so I, I kind of think of it this way, 4550, 5560. Paul had his first missionary journey around 45, his second one around 50 AD, his third one around 55 AD, and then he goes to his imprisonment in Rome around 60 AD, give or take a few years on each of those, or a couple years. And so 45, 50, 55, uh, 60. At this point in his third missionary journey, it's around 55 AD. And so as Paul has gone out and he's, he's begun to do his ministry and his work, he's coming back to Jerusalem. And he knows what's in store for him there because the Holy Spirit has communicated this to him. We're going to take a look at that passage in Acts chapter 20. He knows that he's going to be in prison. He knows that he's going to uh, probably have to stand before Caesar or something like that because he's, he's been communicated in some way by the Holy, or from the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's communicated that to the Philippian church. The Philippian church isn't surprised when they find out that he actually uh, is, is doing that. So here's, here's a couple of pictures. Uh, let's see if I can get this to move forward here. There we go. There's a little bit about kind of what you just saw. Paul's third missionary journey uh, starts in Antioch. Antioch is uh, one of the Gentile sending churches that sent uh, Paul, Barnabas originally, and then others along the way. And so he goes from Antioch, and then, like I say, through, you could see kind of up through Asia and up through um, around the Aegean Sea and Acacia, which is where Corinth is. And then he circles back around and comes through to go to Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he's arrested, and then he's taken from there to Caesarea, where he stands trial, boards a ship. He's, he's told that he's going to go stand before uh, Caesar because he's requested that. He's a Roman citizen, so he can do that. So he, he goes then into a ship, and then that's when he kind of goes along the pathway there to go to Rome, where he is in house uh, prison or, or house jail, so to speak, where he's, he is shackled, uh, but he has some freedom to have visitors come, and, and what better thing to do in that time than write letters? And so he writes the letters, uh, several letters, but one of them is the letter to, to Philippi. So that gives you a little bit of the background as we jump into this text. Now, the amazing part for me as I look at this text is how Paul keeps joy through his circumstance. And you see over and over in, in the book of Philippians how Paul talks about how he's rejoicing, how he has joy about what God is doing. That's very possible that the Philippians, the church in Philippi, they wrote to Paul and said, hey, we're really struggling with what's happening. We don't understand it. I don't know. Maybe he's reassuring them. And that's kind of what you see at the beginning here is Paul reassures them that, hey, things are okay. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened. Things are okay. And Paul, through this whole circumstance, has found a way to have joy in the Lord. I can tell you, I mean, I've gone through some circumstances. You've gone some through some circumstances. We as a church have gone through some circumstances where we can say it's really hard to maintain joy. So how do you do that? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is how do you find joy? And, and that's what Paul does. So finding joy is, is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, this is actually a logo from a, an app that when you go into a city, it'll help you find some entertainment that will bring you joy. So, you know, like things that are going on in the actual... Oh, it didn't show up up there. 
That may be because we're offline today. We didn't have internet and for some reason didn't. So disregard what I just said about that app. So you guys can't even see that logo. Uh, but finding, it looks like finding nothing to you guys. <laughs> but it's such a joy underneath that. So, all right, well, we can start off with a little bit of humor. That's okay. Um, the world research, uh, the world has researched some things on joy, and this is taken from happify.com. But as, as you look at what they've done, they've basically taken and, and they've looked at uh, a lot of different things as far as, you know, taking in information and putting out surveys and so forth. And so they've done a research and then they've gone ahead and, and put together some ideas as far as what people do to find joy or how people can find joy. So I thought I'd share this with you and then we'll get into the text, into the Bible, which is really where we can learn about how to find joy. But I thought we'd kind of compare notes with what the world says. So uh, the first thing is they say this, uh, they found that people who have joy spend six to seven hours per day with friends and family. Okay, Six to seven hours a day with loved ones. Uh, helps keep joy, maintain joy in people's lives. Or at least that's what they found with people who have some sort of joy. And, and by the way, when we talk about joy, we're not talking about the joy that kind of, you know, makes you jump up and down, get all excited, you know, hey, our football team just won. Uh, that's not the kind of joy. We're just talking about kind of that, that joy that you just have in life. There's a peace. There's a, there's a joy there. So six to seven hours per day with friends and family. Uh, the other one is that they found that typically the person who has joy has t- around ten friends. More than that, you get a little more stressed out because you've got to maintain all those relationships. Less than that, and you feel a little more lonely. Okay, so somewhere around in there, 10 friends. I don't know. You can take notes on this if you want, if you feel like this will be helpful. But, uh, but there you go, 10 friends. So the next one is that you have a ratio of 5 to 1, and it's kind of weird, uh, worded weird, but having a 5 to 1 positive over negative exchange. In other words, you would have 5 positive words, uh, conversations that are, are happy versus one negative one. And that would, would help bring joy. Uh, so if you have a lot of negative input in your life, you have to increase fivefold the positive input into your life, so to speak. That's, that's some thoughts. Uh, and then uh, they found that people who have at least $75,000 a year or more... Uh, <laughs> typically are, are happy. So um, if you have less than that, sorry, you're just sad. That's just, I guess, what it is. But um, Now, they found that to be, I guess, the breaking point where under that amount is where people tend to have more stress, anxiety, uh, depression, uh, poor marriages, parenting, I guess, things like that. It's funny because, I, I mean, people who make more than that have all those issues too. So I'm not sure uh, why that, that came to be. But anyhow, that's, that's how they found it. That's what they found in their research. Uh, and then here's another one, um, that you would live within one mile of a cheerful friend. So that would be one that would be helpful. So Russ, you're, you're within a mile. Hopefully you're cheerful. So that will help me find joy for me. And hopefully I'm cheerful for you. So that, that helps. Um, but yeah, live within a mile of, of a cheerful friend that will bring. And then the other one, is to be 33, 55, or, se- or in your 70s. So, I'm not sure why, but somewhere in those areas, they say 33 because at that point you're starting to make a little bit more money and you still have some energy. What I found really interesting is the age of 44, which I'm not sure why it's always 33, 44, 5, 5, but 
At the age 44 is when you have the least amount of joy in your life, which is really depressing because that's only like a couple of years away from me. Like I'm going to hit that and then it's going to be down. And then, then it gradually goes up as time goes by. And then in 55, uh, you're hitting, like maybe 55, you're like, you, retirement is, you know, close at hand. I'm not sure. 55 is, is, is a time of joy and then in your 70s. So there you go. I know you have a lot of control over that, but... Um, there's the world's research on joy. So do with it what you will. We're going to look at the text and what God has to say. Let's pray. Father, we are, are delighted that we can come to your word and we can read not only what Paul has experienced in his own life and what he communicated to the church of Philippi, but Father, ultimately we know it's what you communicate. And Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to write what he, read, what he, what he uh, wrote And Lord, we read it now 2,000 years later, and we want to understand what he wrote at that time for the church in Philippi, but we also want to understand how it can encourage us right now, right here, right where we are in our own lives. Father, we we want to be filled with, with joy that comes from you. And we know that there's only one way, and that's to come to you. And so we come to you now, we ask that you will teach us, guide us, Help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Philippians, we're going to start with verse 12 of chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your bulletin, you're going to see that there's, in the talk points, I kind of broke it up two ways. One is uh, the delivery to Philippi. It's just going to give you kind of a textual outline. Uh, Paul reassures the church and and rejoices over what matters most. And then the takeaway for us, and these are just some application points for you and I as we kind of bridge over into our context today. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Now, Philippi would have known what had actually happened to Paul. So let's take a look at that text. This is Acts 20, 22 to 24. On Paul's third missionary journey, he's actually coming back towards Jerusalem at this point, and he comes and he meets with the elders of Ephesus, not in Ephesus. They actually travel a little bit, and they meet on the road. And Paul begins to share with them what God has laid on his heart, that he would go back to Jerusalem. And they're actually trying to talk him out of it. They're saying, Paul, don't do it. Don't go back there. We know as soon as you go back there, there's going to be trouble. You're going to be arrested. And Paul says, no, I feel like I'm compelled to go there. So he says here in verse 22, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. He says he's not knowing, but then he goes on to say this, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me. So, so I don't know what's going to happen, except the Holy Spirit has warned me that, all, that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. So he knows in some way or another that he's going to go there, and there's, there's chains, there's afflictions, there's this potential that he's going to be imprisoned there. And so he, he walks into a situation where he knows it's going to happen. He goes, this is, this is basically how he comes to the conclusion. I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So he goes ahead and he goes to Jerusalem knowing that I could end up in chains, knowing that he could be in prison, but he does it because he sees that it's what God wants him to do and to fulfill his ministry and his purpose. That's tough, isn't it? 
I mean, could you walk into a situation like that? Like, I know this is not going to be good. I know that I could be beat. I know that I could be imprisoned. I know that I could be uh, tortured, you know, whatever. And, and he still does it because he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, we have a hard enough time just, like, walking across the street and sharing the gospel with our neighbor, right? Because we're like, I don't know what our neighbor's going to think of me. And, but Paul's compelled to go there knowing that he could end up in chains. So he goes. But he, he writes back now to his churches like in Philippi, Ephesus, Corinth, all these. He's going to say, guys, I want you to know that what has happened has actually advanced the gospel. He has a perspective here, and he reassures them that what has happened is actually a good thing. So you continue to move forward. Verse 13, it says, So that what has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, from Jerusalem all the way up to Rome and this pathway that I've taken, all of them know why I'm in chains. Everyone else, that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. And you can see this. I, I can imagine when Paul meets people, and you know, I don't know what it would have been like necessarily that he had been going from city to city on boat. They get off, and, and he's walking around town with soldiers around him. People are like, man, what happened to that guy? And Paul's like, hey, I'm in chains because of Christ. You know, he's just telling people, I'm in chains because of Christ. I'm here being persecuted for my faith because of Christ. And he's just communicating that to people. Everybody knows that he's in chains because of Christ. He says, now most of the brothers, and, and there could be some dialogue going back and forth between the church in Philippi and, and Paul at this point, that maybe, maybe some of the people there are saying, hey, there's some things happening here. There's some things happening in the towns. There's some people rising up, and they're trying to make a bad name for you, Paul. So he, go, he comes to this section. He says, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. But to be sure, some, and there's a group of people out there that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And I think Paul's reassuring them, hey, there's a group of people that are growing and they're being more confident and they have more courage to go out there and share their faith. I know you're worried about this group over here that's causing some problems and, and maybe they're saying, hey, you follow Paul, but really you shouldn't follow Paul. You should go you know, this other direction. He says, don't worry about that. Focus on the fact that there's some, there's some good things happening. And there's people gaining confidence and there's, there's growth happening. That's what Paul was focusing on. And we can always focus on that negative. It's kind of that five-to-one ratio, right? We hear that one negative thing, and that's all we think about when there's maybe five positive things happening. Or maybe there's just two positive things happening. Maybe there's just one positive thing happening. But why not be excited and rejoice over the good that's happening and not get so down over that one bad thing? So Paul points that out and says, hey, listen, that a lot of people have gained confidence these preach out of love. These are the ones that have gained confidence, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So they hear what I'm doing. They see what I'm doing. They're not saying, oh, Paul's in prison because he did something wrong. They're saying, no, Paul's in prison because he took a stand for Christ, and they've gained confidence, and they're willing to say that. Others maybe proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Maybe some of them are like, hey, this is our opportunity. Paul was a great speaker, but we're going to come behind him, and we're going to try to gain popularity. We're going to try to put down Paul and raise ourselves up. They don't do it sincerely, thinking that they will somehow cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So Paul addresses that. Here's what he goes on to say. What does it matter? 
Okay? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. Now, you can read this and start to think, boy, it sounds like Paul's saying that the, the end justifies the means, right? But look at what Paul's saying. He's saying that he's not so concerned about the motives of the person and what they're saying. What he's concerned about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I can't judge the heart and the motive of someone. We can, we can kind of look. We certainly need to exercise some discernment. But what we need to see is what God is doing. And sometimes God uses people that have wrong motives. I've seen it in my life. You've probably seen it in your life. In fact, here's an example of one. I don't know if you've heard of Charles Templeton, but he was born in 1915. Okay? In 1936, he professed faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he became well-known for his preaching. He was an evangelist. He was a contemporary with, with Billy Graham. In fact, many people had said he was better than Billy Graham. He planted uh, Avenue Road Church of the Nazarene up in Canada, and some say that every time he would preach, about 150 people on average would come to Christ. This is incredible. At a time period where the gospel was exploding and, and things were taking off and people were like, man, this, this guy, let's go hear Templeton. He's, he's fantastic. And so he, he planted that church there. He got it going. In 1946, he helped start Youth for Christ. He was a key player in that. He even toured Western Europe with Billy Graham. Went all over the place over there and together they did all kinds of crusades. But in 1957, he lost his faith and announced he was an agnostic. Later, he went from agnostic to atheist. And before he died, in about 2001, he wrote a book, Falling Away from God. Now, here's a guy that God used to lead people to Christ. But when he died, he died saying, there is no God. I don't know what was in his heart while he was getting up there and teaching people about who Christ is and people were coming to faith. And I can try to guess all day long what his motive was. But the reality is people did get saved when he preached the gospel. And it's just a, another demonstration that there's power in the gospel, not in a man, not in a woman. The power is in God's word. The power is in the Holy Spirit, not in the person who's up on stage delivering the message. And it could be a person who doesn't even have faith, and still God uses that person when they present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul looked at that situation, and maybe there's some people out there causing trouble. I understand that, Paul says, but, but listen, what matters most is that people are getting saved and Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Now, I've found in my own heart, in my own life, that there are times when I see God doing things, you know, around the world or across town in another church, and people are coming to, to faith, or you invite somebody to come on a Sunday morning. This, this is the mind of a pastor here for you, okay? You invite someone to come on a Sunday morning, and they preach the gospel, and they do a great job of spreading the gospel, and someone that you've been working with for like, you know, 10 months says, hey, I'm going to place my faith in Christ. And you're like, man, how come you don't do that when I preach? You know, and you, you start to get a little jealous in that that's, there's a rivalry, there's envy. 
that we have to fight off. And I think what Paul has to say here is so profound and is so helpful for us that, listen, it doesn't matter if I lead a person to Christ. It doesn't matter if you lead a person to Christ. What matters is that person comes to Christ. Right? And it doesn't matter if I'm the key person to help be, disciple them along the way. What matters is that they're being discipled. What matters is that they're growing. Because it's not about me. It's about Christ. So he says, I will rejoice in what's happening. Because great things are happening. Now he goes on in verse 19, and he says something that's a little strange, at least when I read it for the first time, uh, and then studied it through this, this, uh, this last week. He says, because I know this will lead to my salvation. Now, depending on your translation, you may have the word deliverance there. And if it's the word deliverance, it kind of leads you to believe that Paul is saying that he's going to be delivered from chains. Now, if you look at the text and you actually look at that word a little bit more, the word that's used for salvation or deliverance, depending on your translation, is mostly used throughout the Bible as salvation. And I think even contextually, it's difficult to say that the word deliverance should be used like he would be delivered from his chains because contextually, it's not talking about him being delivered. He's actually talking about how he's willing to either live or die for Christ. And I think he walks into this situation going, it's unknown. So when he says, I know this will lead to my salvation, we'd say, well, Paul's already saved. Why is he talking about leading to his salvation? And he goes on through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. If you look at the context, I think what Paul is saying as he moves forward is, I struggle with my faith too. I think sometimes when we read like the Bible and we read guys like Paul, we think, oh, they're these super you know, giants of faith and they don't have struggles with, with it. But you know what? He does. There's, uh, oh, I'm going to go back to there. Oh, yeah, uh, tw- sorry, <laughs> chapter 12. Verse, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me because our internet isn't working this morning, so I'm kind of uh, going off of just the slides here. But, but uh, chapter 2, verse 12, Paul talks about how he encourages people there to work out their own salvation. Okay, this is the same book, same letter. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul makes a reference to that for the people in Philippi, and I think he's making a reference because he himself knows he's still working out his salvation, not in order to be saved, but it's this process, and I'll share with you this process here. There's three points of salvation that the Bible talks about. There's the point where you are justified, justification, and that's the point where we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, there's sin in our lives, and we know that one day there's a payment, and that payment is when we die, we would go to hell, a terrible place where there's torture and you know, punishment. When you place your faith in Christ, you are saved from that penalty because Christ has already paid that price for you. That's the justification piece. Okay, Christ has, has declared you righteous from the work that he's done. But then there's sanctification, and that's the, the piece where we are being saved from the power of sin. And we read about that maybe in 1 John where it talks about overcoming the evil one. Uh, there's certainly Satan that, that's a spiritual warfare. He wants to see us fail, and he's going to try to tempt us in all kinds of ways. Then, of course, we have our flesh, 
And our flesh has desires and wants that are apart from God, so we have that to deal with. We have the world, and the world wants you know, our attention and wants to pull us in a direction that's away from God. So those are the things that we're struggling with on a regular basis. That's the sanctification piece of salvation, that we are becoming more like Christ. And then the third step is glorification. When we meet Christ face to face, either when he comes back or when we go to heaven, we will be glorified. And it's at that point that we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will not be around us at all. Now, that's going to be an awesome time. That, that's, that's what makes heaven that time period when we can't even begin to understand what it's like. Because we have no idea what it would be like to be saved from the presence of sin. So that's something to definitely look forward to. So Paul is saying, I think right now, that we are being saved from the power of sin. There's a sanctification process that's happening. And I think that's what he's, he's talking about there in that verse 19. Here's why. Verses 20, or verse 20 following. He says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. Now why would Paul be asking that? Why would he be asking that he would grow in courage? Probably because he's struggling to. Right? That's his sanctification piece. That's his growing in his understanding of, of salvation and who Christ is and becoming more like Christ, conformed to the likeness of his death and all those things that he's going to talk about more and more in the church or in this letter to Philippi. I don't want to be ashamed about anything. I want to be courageous and bold and that Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I know that I'm in these chains. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I know that Christ will be honored, and I want to live my life in a way that honors Christ, either by life or by death. And he makes that his goal. He makes that his focus. So Paul is is working out his salvation, as he says in chapter 2, verse 12. He's becoming more like Christ, as he talks about in chapter 2, 1 through 11. He, He wants to be who God created him to be and fulfill that purpose. So as we look at some application points that we can take home, I was just encouraged to to look at what Paul had done in his own life and say, how can I be more like Paul in this situation and find joy? And so here's a couple points that I was thinking as I went through this. One is to choose victory over victim mentality. It's really easy for us, like in a situation like Paul, hey, if you're arrested and you're going to be going on a ship across the seas and you're going to be going to Rome to stand before Caesar to start to feel like you're in this victim mentality. Like, oh, woe is me. My world's crumbling. Everything's falling apart around me. Uh, I, I'm the, the, uh, the one who's going to receive all the, the hurt and the pain and, and you know, the, the prison sentence. Uh, and so you kind of take on that, that victim mentality. But Paul chooses not to. To embrace that. Instead, he embraces victory. Look at what God's doing. And even in a way, I think Paul's saying, hey, all these things, you know, for the last 20 years I've been doing mission work and, and, and going out there and establishing churches, and now God is showing that he has raised up a next generation that's going to be able to take the church forward. He's excited about that. So he chooses victory. Remember along the way, as times get tough and circumstances are difficult, that your testimony means something. That's what Paul does here. He says, man, my testimony has has gone out. People around me know that Christ is the one I am in chains for. And people are starting to go, why would somebody continue their faith 
if it means they'd go to prison. In other words, why doesn't Paul just renounce his faith? Why doesn't Paul just say, ah, I'm not going to follow Christ anymore? Because he knows that Christ is the Messiah. And he knows that he is to be a testimony out there. And that begins to gain respect out in the community. So remember, your testimony means something, even in a difficult situation. And then practice humble discernment. And I kind of was trying to figure out how to really to word this, but this was the section when, when Paul begins to see, hey, there's people out there, they're spreading the gospel. I don't know what their motive is, but I do know that Christ is being proclaimed, and for that I rejoice. That takes some humble discernment where you're able to say, you know, there are people out there with, with motives that are wrong, but Christ is proclaimed, and for that I will rejoice. So he exercises both of those. And he's humble, and he's discerning at the same time. So maintain a healthy view of your circumstance. That's, I think, the first point. The second one is just to rejoice in the work that Jesus is doing. Right? Look at what he's doing and and rejoice over it. Enjoy giving Christ the credit. That's what he does there. Christ is proclaimed. I'm not proclaimed. Paul's not proclaimed. Uh, Peter's not proclaimed. Any one of the apostles, he's not talking about this. No, Christ is proclaimed. Look at what Christ is doing. And we can see that here. It involved church. Christ is doing some things. Across town, Christ is doing some things. Let's be excited about that. Let's rejoice about what Christ is doing all over the world, all over the country, right here in Nampa. Enjoy giving Christ the credit. And let's not try to take it for ourselves. And then enjoy, this is probably the hardest one, enjoy the work of salvation. And I say it's the hardest because sometimes when God's working on me, and my, my arrogance and my pride, and he's kind of chipping that away, it hurts, Right? It's not easy to enjoy those things. But if the outcome is to be more like Christ, if the outcome is to help us be more like the one who saved us, it's going to be hurtful, it's going to be painful, but it's going to be honoring to God the Father. And that's what we want in our lives. And that takes us really back to verse 6, one of the most beloved verses in the book. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He may have to chip away at some things. He may have to bring some things into our life that aren't, it's not fun. But through those times, we can find joy because God is still on his throne. God is still working. God is still doing something in your life. And he has a plan and he has a purpose for you. He has a plan and he has a purpose for me. And he has a plan and a purpose for us together. And we should praise God for that. Father, thank you for... This text, thank you for the reminder that we have in this book in, in Philippians. What an awesome privilege it is to know that you are God. You are on your throne. You know what's right and best. You took a guy like Paul, did some incredible things with him, from a guy who was persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison, even killing them, to a guy who was going out and fighting for the gospel. Father, take us, whatever our background is, whatever our circumstance is, and use us in a way that brings you honor and glory. We come to you open, open-handed, open-armed. We, God, we just pray that you would, would use us and that we would find joy in how you use us. I thank you for our church. I thank you for the opportunities you give us. Lord, we look forward to the months and years ahead that we can continue to do ministry right here in the Napa area and around the world. Use us however you see fit. And may we give all glory and honor to you for the work that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.